This is from the Denkoroku, case one. Shakyamuni Buddha. The case. Shakyamuni Buddha realized enlightenment on seeing the morning star. He said, I and all beings on earth together attain enlightenment at the same time. Keizan's Commentary Shakyamuni left his palace one night when he was 19 years old and shaved off his hair. After that, he spent six years absorbed in various ascetic practices. Subsequently, he sat on the indestructible seat, so immovable that there were cobwebs on his eyebrows, a bird's nest on his head, and reeds growing up through his sitting mat. Thus, he sat for six years. In his 30th year, on the morning of December 8th, he was suddenly enlightened when the morning star appeared. Then he spoke the foregoing words. His first lion roar. Kazan's verse. One branch stands out of the old apricot tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. So today we are concluding a full ango training period. And as in the case of every full ango, we usually end around December 8th, which is a historical date of the Buddha's enlightenment. And this is a significant event for most Buddhist traditions since it marks the historical inception of our practice and it contains the entirety of the teachings. From that point on, until the day he died, the Buddha devoted every moment of his life to guiding others on the path of realization and to simply being a living manifestation of an awakened life. All of it comes down to an awakening experience on the morning of December 8th, 2,500 years ago. But the question is for us, how do we understand this? What exactly happened on that day? What does it mean for us? As with any spiritual teachings, the tendency of practitioners is to idealize the teacher and externalize the teachings, which can often lead to great misunderstanding, confusion, and frustration. The fact that the Buddha realized or had an awakening experience does not relieve us personally, from the responsibility to put everything on the line, as he did, set foot on the path, experience the challenges that come with fully embracing the practice, and realize on our own. The onus is on each of us. And so today's koan turns our attention to the Buddha's realization experience and his life, and it is urging us to personally follow this example in the midst of our hectic lives and realize today what the Buddha realized many years ago. And realize today means realize right now, at this moment, with everything that is sitting heavy on us, 
with the many karmic entanglement that we have, entanglements we have to work with, and everything is going on in this body as the one sitting on this cushion. This is the Buddha seat. This koan is case number one in a collection titled Denkoroku, which means the transmission of the lamp. It has 51 cases and biographies, beginning with Shakyamuni and ending with Ejo, who was Dogen's successor. The Denkoroku was compiled by Keizan Jokin, a 13th, 14th century Japanese Zen teacher, who is considered as the second founder of the Japanese Soto school after Dogen. His name is chanted by the Ino during morning service, as we heard today, and is also in the invocation during ceremonies. Dogen is known as Koso, which means highest patriarch, and Keizan is known as Taiso, which means great patriarch, as in Namu Koso Joyo Daishi, Namu Taiso Josai Daishi. So based on oral tradition, which later became written history and the basis of scholarly research, there seems to be a general agreement about the three most significant events of the Buddha's life. His birth, the day of his enlightenment, and his death. Of these three events, the day of his enlightenment is highly relevant to every Buddhist practitioner. All Buddhist traditions are traced back to that day when Shakyamuni was awakened. The moment of his awakening contains everything that occurred up to that point and everything that occurred from that point on. Yet, it stands alone like an air-shattering roar of a lion, as Keizan Zenchi's word. And so since this is most significant to us practitioners, we have to inquire deeply into that. What was Shakyamuni awakened to? Was there Buddhism before the moment of his awakening? How do we understand that? What path was founded at the moment of his realization? And lastly, what is our responsibility as those who maintain this path or claim to maintain this path? In the commentary, Keizan Zenchi addresses these questions and he says, So studying from all angles, penetrating in all ways, you should clarify the Buddha's enlightenment and your own enlightenment. I want you all to see this story closely and to be able to explain it, letting the explanation flow from your own heart, not borrowing from the words of others. Letting the explanation flow from your own heart, not thinking about it, not trying to figure out anything, just allowing it to flow. Why? Because it's there because it wants to flow, because it's not something that we need to invent or arrive at. It is simply there. And what we need to do is simply 
learn to get out of the way and allow it to flow. Keizan Zenshi takes the story of the Buddha out of his historical context and puts it in front of our face in the most relevant and intimate way possible. Here it is. You want to awaken or you want to understand what is awakening all about? Here it is. It's about this. And he's saying that the only way to understand the Buddha's realization is through your own realization. Which means, do not go anywhere else. Do not wish to become anyone else. And raise bodhicitta, the way-seeking mind, right here, right now. And to raise a way-seeking mind means to bring doubt to any thought, any thought that seems to verify who we are. Whether I'm, I feel that I'm successful, a failure, smart, not so smart, wealthy, poor, enlightened, deluded, all of it put aside for the time being. When someone asks you who you are, or when you ask yourself who are you, the mind quickly grabs the attention and comes up with a story that has very little to do with who we really are, or with this moment. But what, what happens to this question when you go beyond the mind, beyond that story that is very quick to come up? What happens when we turn full attention to the total experience of being in this moment or the experience of our being in this moment. Who are you when the question bypasses the mind and goes directly to the body? When we ask the body who we are, how does the body answer? There is the perpetual story of you that is always playing in the background. And then there is the original you that the body is constantly telling of. Brilliantly. Are we listening? Who are you right now? Not yesterday, not tomorrow. Right now. What about forgetting yesterday and tomorrow? Essentially, to forget is to remember. We have to forget before we remember. And then we know. St. Tsang said, let go of love and hate. Then everywhere you are with the way. Let go of all dualities. Let go of clinging. And when you let go of love and hate, everywhere you encounter nothing but love. And the process of awakening to who we really are begins with doubting who we think we are. And that's exactly what the Buddha did. So looking at the story of the Buddha, as most of you know, he grew up very sheltered, 
from the rest of the world, from other people in the village. His father wanted him to be sheltered and protected so he can become a great king. He was a prince. He was supposed to become a great king. They did not want to expose him to any hardships, any pain, any discomfort. So he pampered him and he made sure that he doesn't see any suffering. So he stayed in the palace for a very long time. And at some point, he started to doubt that. And he wanted to get out. He wanted to see what's beyond the palace. So he was able to get out. Uh, he asked one of his servants to take him for a short trip to the village. And when he got out, he encountered an old man, a sick person, a corpse, and an ascetic. And it is said that he came back to the palace and he started to doubt everything he knew. And this is not different than our own journey. We have to, to want to examine. We also are very sheltered in different ways. Even searching online, you know, it's not quite what we think it is. We search online for something and what we see is controlled by what we want to see or what we have seen so far. Because there are algorithms that are always calculating, always looking for a connection between what we like and what is being shown to us. What we hear is limited. So we are, in a way, also sheltered. We are also guided to think in a specific way, to consume in a specific way, to be in a certain way and stay that way. So we have to question that. We have to doubt that venture out. So he encountered reality as it is. How do we encounter reality as it is? We stop and take a look. Or maybe we stop creating uh, an alternative version of reality. Or maybe stop running away from it and find all kinds of vices that will help us forget the way things are. Then he came back and he started to doubt and at some point he decided to leave it all behind, shave his head, leave his wife, leave his son and leave the palace with nothing with himself, nothing but himself or nothing but the doubt. He then spent quite a long time living with ascetics mastering their way, got really good at being an ascetic. And it is said that he was able to live on one grain of rice a day and a little bit of water. So he did that for quite a while, got great at it. And then at some point he was so skinny, so weak, and he fell into the river. And he almost died and uh, a milkmaid by the name of Sujata helped him up, out and gave him some food, some milk, revived him. And then he looked at her when he was able to speak again. He looked at her, he thanked her, and he realized. He realized what he has done so far. He went from one extreme to the other. He went from self-indulgence to self-deprivation. 
And then he came to the understanding that neither one of those paths does lead to any true and lasting liberation. So from that point on, he decided to devote every ounce of his being to get to the bottom of it, to realize at all costs, whatever it takes. And so he sat down next to a big tree after about six years or so, and he made this resolution. Though my skin, my nerves, and my bones shall waste away, and my lifeblood grow dry, I will not leave this seat until I have attained the highest wisdom, the supreme enlightenment that leads to everlasting contentment. He meditated on his breathing in and breathing out. It was the eve of the full moon during the first part of the, of the night. Many evil thoughts described as being like the devil, like evil god Mara and his army crept into his mind. Thoughts of desire, craving, fear, and attachment arose. Yet Shakyamuni did not allow these thoughts to disturb his concentration. At some point, Mala realized that he's unable to disturb Shakyamuni. And so he said, Okay, so what if you come to this great realization that you think you will arrive at? You're here alone. Who will approve of you? Who will say, great job, you did it. And then Shakyamuni touched the ground and then said this famous line, this ground is my witness. I don't need anything or anyone else to witness it. I don't need anyone to approve of it, to verify it. And that was enough. That was plenty. Is that enough for us? This ground, is it, is it our witness? Is it your witness? The cushion you sit on, is that enough? Look around, whatever we see around us. Is that enough to verify? Or until or unless someone says, great job. Or someone says, you are now complete. We say to ourselves, we are not complete. Until then, are we not complete? Is the voice in the head louder than the voice of reality? Because it is very loud. Or both are very loud. So after this, he said even more firmly, based on the stories, and strengthened his determination to not be moved by the passing thoughts, by sensations, by emotions. He sat with the intention to dive deeply into the fundamental question of the human condition and the inevitable demise of our physical form that is marked by extinction. He sat and concentrated on the question of his own identity wanting to see if there is such an entity that can be called a self. Who am I? Who is the one that is subjected to sickness, old age, and death? And as you observe deeply, he began to realize that what we call me is essentially unsubstantiated and does not exist separately. 
he looked deeply into it and began to realize that what he considered as Shakyamuni does not exist separately and is interconnected, co-arising with all phenomena at the same time. At the same time. In Sanskrit, this is called Platitya Samutpada, which means interdependent origination. All things arise, subsist, and disintegrate within an infinite web of creation with no beginning and no end. You realize that what he called himself is just an optical illusion that the mind creates. And the Buddha did not come to realization by chance. He had to rebel against the wishes of his father and the expectations of his social status. And he had to work with his own habitual calm extremes. He trusted that there is another way to exist in this world. And he was willing to go through a long process of investigation. As we have to be willing to do. So we also have to do the same and be willing to rebel against what seems to be natural, feels natural and comfortable. Go against the grain, turn towards what may feel scary or threatening. And to rebel doesn't mean to rail against or to fight or to abandon or push away. It means to abandon as in abandoning what is unwholesome and nurturing what is wholesome. And our daily zazen offers great opportunity to observe the movement of mind, to observe the movement of habitual or karmic self, bear witness to all the stories it keeps telling, and choose, choose to not be moved by that. In other words, choose to not allow the body to follow the mind. And there's no need to stop the mind from moving, all we need to do is just disengage from the movement of mind. Kind of like a manual transmission car. When you press the clutch, what happens? You press the clutch and you separate between the engine and the wheels. The engine keeps running, but the car doesn't move. For those of you who drive manual transmission. That's exactly what we need to do. Press the clutch or find the clutch that separates between the movement of mind and the movement of body. So the mouth and the body do not just automatically follow along. You know, the stillness of our zazen interferes with the impulsive connection between the thinking mind and the body. And by doing so, by separating, by going through... By doing that through volition, we weaken the power of the illusory self and strengthen the power of our original and authentic nature. And the issue is that the, the temptation to engage with thoughts is very strong. So we need to counter, we need to go against that in an intentional way. We need to do it every time we are about to sit. We have to raise the intention again and again, to not follow the mind. 
or at least to keep coming back when we do follow the mind, because we do, to keep coming back and to trust that all we need is provided right here. Nothing is missing and we are not incomplete. On the night, night of his uh, realization, the Buddha went through stages of deepening. And in the Dhammapada, there is a great description of that. It says, I, rose I roused unflinching determination, focused my attention, made my body calm and motionless, and my mind concentrated and one-pointed. Standing apart from all selfish urges and all states of mind harmful to spiritual progress, I entered the first meditative state where the mind, though not quite free from divided and diffused thought, experiences lasting joy. So that's the first stage, first step. Then, by putting an end to divided and diffused thought, with my mind stilled in one-pointed absorption, samadhi, I entered the second meditative state quite free from any wave of thought and experienced the lasting joy of the unitive state. As that joy became more intense and pure, I entered the third meditative state, becoming conscious in the very depth of the unconscious. Even my body was flooded with that joy of which the noble ones say they live in abiding joy who have stilled the mind and are fully awake. Then, going beyond the duality of pleasure and pain and the whole field of memory-making forces in the mind, I dwelt at last in the fourth meditative state fourth jhana heaven, that is called, utterly beyond the reach of thought. In that realm of complete purity, which can be reached only through detachment and contemplation. Detachment as in disengaging from the mind. To disengage and to contemplate. Not to think, but to be. And then he says, this was my first successful breaking forth, like a chick breaking out of its shell. And then commenting on that, Eknath Eswaran writes, this last quiet phrase is deadly. Our everyday life, the Buddha is suggesting, is lived within an eggshell. We have no more idea of what, what life is really like then a chicken has before it hatches excitement and depression fortune and misfortune pleasure and pain are storms in a tiny private shell-bound realm which we take to be the whole of existence isn't that true we we, we shrink ourselves or we, we shove ourselves with such a in such to such a tiny realm thinking that's it, that's who I am, that's my reality. 
That's what I'm going to tell myself. It's what I'm going to tell others. We reduce ourselves to a self. Then he says, yet we can break out of this shell and enter a new world. For a moment, the Buddha draws aside the curtain of space and time and tells us what it's like to see into another dimension. It is possible. And it is not possible just for him. Well, he never said that. He said, here's what I've done. You can do it too. Because we are of the same nature. You can do it too. He also said, it's a long process. It is a long, long path. And it will be uncomfortable and it will be painful at times. We fall down, we get up, we patch up, we move on. That's all there is to it. And then when the morning star appeared, he was fully awakened. And these are the first words he uttered. Wonder of wonders, I, all beings, the great earth or the wisdom and virtue of the awakened one to thusness. But because of our upside-down views, we fail to see that. And we need to hear that again and again and again and again. Like a deep tissue massage. We are so rigid and so uptight that we have to do it again and again and again. And little by little, loosen up. Loosen up to the possibility that we can also loosen up so we can see how we ourselves create the trap. Wonder of wonders. Keizan Zenchi commented saying, this I is not Shakyamuni Buddha. Then who is that? And he says, even Shakyamuni Buddha comes from this eye. And he does not only give birth to Shakyamuni Buddha. All beings on earth also come from that. Just as when you lift up a net, all the holes are raised. In the same way that when Shakyamuni was enlightened, so too were all beings on earth enlightened at the same time at the same time. But as long as we, we see ourselves separated from other people or our environment, this makes no sense. How could that be? How could that be? I'm here, you're there. This is 2,500 years ago. What about us now? Does that include us at that same time? What is time? What is being? Where is the gap between those two? Go look for it. Being upside down, we do not recognize interdependent origination, so we become convinced of the assumption that there is, or there are gaps, and there is such an entity apart of 
everything and everybody else. And this unexamined assumption becomes the greatest burden of our lives and essentially the root cause of suffering. We protect it, fear for its existence, worry about its worthiness in relation to others, and experience great distress and restlessness. And as long as there is an idea of a fixed self, there is a fixed self who takes everyday challenges in a personal way and often unfair. Why is it happening to me? I deserve different kind of circumstances, different opportunities, or maybe different karma. I am disappointed with the way my life turned out. And on and on and on. The illusory self tries to find solid ground and build an indestructible structure. But there is one problem with that. The ground keeps shifting and the walls of the structure keep cracking. And as in the second noble truth, we suffer because we grasp and try to hold on to what is impossible to grasp. The Buddha said that all our problems arise from wanting an apple tree to bear mangoes. That's what we want, an apple tree to bear mangoes. Because I like mangoes better than apples. That's why. How about inquiring into the nature of an apple tree? That will lead that will definitely lead to peace of mind. Master Dongshan once asked the monk, what is the most tormenting thing in the world? And the monk said, hell is the most tormenting thing. And Dongshan said, no. When that which is draped in these robes, in these clothes, is not aware of the great matter, that I call the most tormenting thing in the world. When we don't realize, we are bound to be tormented. We are bound to not find any long-lasting sense of peace. It's not going to happen. Because it doesn't come from without. And we are tormented because no matter how hard we try to cling to life, it keeps changing on us. It keeps doing what we don't want it to do. Or it's doing what we want it to do, but not for too long. And no matter how much we resist it, it always amounts to futile attempts. Sooner or later, sooner or later, we will agree to be in alignment with the way things are. With a selfless reality, with impermanence. We have to agree. It's not a choice. It will happen. There will be the last breath. But are we willing to wait? Do we want to wait until, until it's too late? I will awaken later. I don't have time to awaken now. Or oh, there are too many obstacles too many issues, too many things I don't like, too many people I have issues with or have issues with me. 
Do we really want to wait? So what should we do when we encounter this the grasping self? How should we subdue this powerful, strong energy in us? And here's what the Buddha said about that. When he talked, one of his talks to his uh, followers, he said, monks, us, I will now teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. Listen and attend carefully. What is agitation through clinging? Here, the uninstructed worldling, non-practitioner, who is not a seer of the truth and is unskilled and undisciplined in the practice of the Dharma, regards form as self or self as possessing form. That form of his changes and alters, obviously, with the change and alteration of the form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form, as we often do, looking in the mirror, looking at ourselves, realizing we are changing, we are getting old. Agitation of mental states born out of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he's frightened, distressed, and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes agitated. It is in such a way that there is agitation through clinging. And what is agitation, sorry, what is non-agitation through non-clinging? Here, he says, the, the instructed disciple who is a seer of the truth and is skilled and disciplined in the practice of the Dharma does not regard form as self or self as possessing form. That form of his changes and alters naturally despite the change and alteration of the form. His consciousness does not become preoccupied with the change of form. In other words, we are not so self-absorbed for a change. No agitation of mental states born of preoccupation with change or form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, he is not frightened, he is not distressed, he is not anxious. And through non-clinging, he does not become agitated. It is in such a way that there is non-agitation through non-clinging. Very simple instructions. Very simple. Are we following such instructions? Simple means it's available. Not, it's not challenging. It's available. But as always, it is up to us to make it so. In his awakening to the original and essential nature, the Buddha saw directly into the ways we get caught up by the mental formations created in the mind. He saw his true nature, and he saw how the true nature gets covered up. And from that point on, he devoted his life to teaching others to turn their attention inwardly 
to look deeply and discover within themselves, within ourselves, what he realized. And following the Buddha, all the great successive Dharma teachers shared the same intention of being a mirror to others. One day when Chaoju was sitting, his attendant came rushing to him and said, Master, the great king has come. So Chaoju stopped sitting, looked surprised and smiling, saying, said, Myriad felicitations, O king. And the attendant says, no, no, he has not come to you yet, Master. And Chaochu was very disappointed. Oh, and you said he has come. Of course, he was not interested in the king. He thought that finally his attendant realized that the great king has come. Finally, you have realized. Myriad felicitations, O king. Who cares about the king? What about the king within? That's what he was interested in. And it's a shame. It's a shame because we can. Actually, the Buddha himself said, everybody can, most will not. Not because he was pessimistic, because he was extremely realistic and he knew. He knew very well from his own practice, how powerful Mara is, how convincing we are talking ourselves out of who we really are and explaining it to others too. Dogen said, it is never apart from one right when one, where one is. It is never apart from one. What the Buddha realized is simply that we need to be in alignment with what is if we want to realize anything. Realization is none other than alignment or enlightenment is none other than being in alignment with this. Not arguing, not fighting this, not creating anything else and then crawl into that. Can we be in full agreement with this? Can we let go of what we think realization means and get quiet, pay attention, and then ask, can I be okay with this? Can I merge with this exactly as it is? Can I merge with the fact that while I'm trying to merge with this, there are other voices within me that say something else? Still, can I merge with that? Isn't that the most important practice of acceptance? We devoted three months to working with acceptance. Are we accepting who we are? Are we accepting the karma we have to deal with? Are we accepting of all of it? Can we rest in it? Or do we have to wait? 
to be in alignment with this. Where is the obstacle? What is holding me back right now from being fully aligned, fully merged with the way things are? At home, in the town I live in, in the country I live in, in the world we live in, in this universe. All of it. What we like, what we don't like, what is sitting heavy on us. Can we truly accept it all? You know, to be a practitioner of the Buddha's way is to work with that, is to accept right here, right now, and go no further. Accept each other as a Sangha, not go somewhere else, because there is no other. So every time December 8th rolls in, we have another reminder. We have a reminder of what it means to truly be a practitioner. To let go of what we think the Buddha is. To let go of what we think realization means. To let go of it. And fully embrace this. So please, please let's not waste any second, any extra second on thinking otherwise. Wake up. Wake up now. Thank you.